Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. board on which I serve. If you don't know uh, Whitworth College, uh, it is one of the great institutions that is affiliated with our Presbyterian Church, one of those institutions that has really worked hard to retain its heart for evangelism, for the Word of God, uh, for the centrality of Jesus Christ in the midst of an of a inquiring and aggressive uh, search for truth. It's a great school, and uh, I tell parents, and especially grandparents, make your plans now. We launched a $50 million capital campaign, and we announced $33 million of it has already been raised. So it's a good time in the life of that school. We're going to build a new classroom building with cutting-edge te- uh, technology. We're going to add to our endowment so that we make Whitworth more and more accessible to uh, qualified students. It's a great, great place. And in the midst of that meeting, I leaned over to my wife and said, you realize that 11 years from now, we will be sitting here as parents of a student. It kind of ruined the rest of the time for us. <laughs> It goes quick. We continue this morning in our series, You've Got Mail. Let's see what we've got this morning. Now, someone didn't put the flag up. All right. Today we visit Sardis as we continue on our postal route around Asia Minor. A couple of uh, pieces of uh, homework here for all of you. First of all, uh, we are moving our tape. We've got good news and bad news. The good news is we have been inundated with requests for tapes. The bad news is we can't keep up with it, and it's bottlenecking over here. So the tape table has been moved over to the other side of the narthex. If you're looking for them and don't know where they are, that's where they are. There was also a question about an edition of Christianity Today to which I referred last week. If you are interested in getting your hands on it, it is a wonderful work uh, on the book of Revelation. Christianity Today, it is the October 25th edition. So if you are looking for that, that's the one to which I alluded. We come this morning to the city of Sardis. Sardis is another 40 miles or so southeast of Thyatira, where we were last week. And there are some things that you need to know about Sardis in order to appreciate the nuance of the reading we're going to have today. First of all, Sardis's best days were behind her, way behind her. There was a time when she was the capital of the Lydian kingdom. In fact, she was the seat of the kingdom of King Croesus. You might remember the king. He was unbelievably wealthy. They mined gold out of the, uh, the river that ran through that area. Uh, they were built. Sardis was built on a three-sided cliff uh, that was uh, considered, considered almost impregnable. And yet Sardis uh, fell to enemies, fell cruelly to King Cyrus in 549 B.C. And then uh, 300 years later in 218, Antiochus, the Seleucid, came and destroyed them and yet again took them over. So their best days as the premier city in that region were, uh, were well behind them. That's one thing you need to remember. 
A second thing you need to remember is how they came to be, be defeated. This is critical when you read the text. Because in both cases, they were defeated because they were not being watchful. Uh, when Cyrus defeated Sardis, he sent a, a, a lone man climbing up a crevice of one of the cliff sides that protected the city. No one was watching because they didn't think it was possible. He got inside, opened the gates. And then 300 years later, Antiochus sent a man named Lagoras who was from the, the island of Crete. He led 15 men up a cliff. They, again, they broke inside, opened the gates up, and let the, uh, let the enemy in. So in both instances, when Sardis was defeated, they were defeated because they were not vigilant in their watch. They did not keep careful watch over the city walls. Okay, got that? Their best was behind them. Uh, they, they were thrown, overthrown because they were not vigilant. And thirdly, a little thing, but it will be interesting to you later in the text. Sardis is known for their wool-making industry. In fact, they were believed to have invented the dyeing industry, the wool-dyeing industry. So they were known for their fabric and for their beautiful garments, their colored garments, which they manufactured. All right? Keep those things in mind. And let's turn to our text this morning as we continue in our series through the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Spirit of God, we have ears and we pray now to hear with them. Speak your word to us, for we are ready to listen. And having heard what you have to say, may it touch our hearts and change our lives, strengthen our church, and further your kingdom. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's a nice start to the letter to Sardis, wouldn't you say? There's no letting up here. Jesus has had some severe things to say to the churches so far. But none of them exceed what he has to say to the church at Sardis. This is by far the harshest word we've heard so far. And maybe even compared to Laodicea, the hardest word that we will hear from Jesus. He just dives right in, doesn't he? He normally starts off with words of praise, but he just dives right in. He says, I know your reputation. You have a reputation for being alive, but what does he say? You are Dead, thank you. Don't sugarcoat it, Jesus. Don't sugar. Tell us what you really think. How do you really feel? Even at his most severe so far, Jesus has found something good to say to the other churches. To the blasé Ephesians, Jesus says, but you are faithful in your theology. You're working hard to keep the church pure. To the idolatrous, idolatrous Pergamites, he says, I'm proud of you for hanging in there, even though your friend Antipas was martyred. To the immoral Thyatirans, he commends them because they have love and faith and they are doing many good deeds. How does he sweet talk the Sardesian church as he begins in his letter to them? I know your deeds. 
You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Not much sweet talk at all, is there? No problem knowing where Jesus is going with, the one, he, with, with this one. He says, I, you have a reputation for being one thing, but in fact you are entirely the other thing. You are a dead church. What is it we call someone who portrays themselves as one thing to the outside world, but on the inside is something entirely else? What do we call that person? A hypocrite. Hypocrite. Jesus used this biting word, especially when he was dealing with the religious leaders of the time. Hypocrites. What does it mean? It was a word from the stage, particularly from Greek stage. A hypocrites or a, a hypocrite was the one who spoke a word originally, who spoke a line. Eventually, he became the one who spoke, who had a part, who played a part on stage. And then later on, they added the mask. So that a, a, a hypocrite would be the one on stage behind the mask who was speaking words. So you did not see who was behind the mask, only that which he wished to portray in front of himself. Got it? Hypocrite. This was hypocrite. Jesus, now, John does not exactly use the word hypocrite in this text. He never uses it. But I think it fits. He says, you have a reputation for being alive. You have a mask. What is the mask they wore? It was a mask of life, a mask of vitality, a mask of spiritual depth. To those who were looking at the, the Sardesian church from the outside, they appeared to have it all together. Maybe they had wonderful worship service with, with bells and a glorious organ and, and a, a, a sanctuary full of people. Maybe they were committed to doing all kinds of good deeds of charity. On the face of it, this church of Sardis looked good. But Jesus says, inside, you are dead. Uh, eight years ago, Cindy and I decided to undertake a little building project, remodel at our house. Our house was 1,300 square feet, and we decided to add 2,000 square feet. Had no idea what I was doing or getting myself into, but by the grace of God and, and many of the men of this church working every Saturday and Mondays and so forth, we managed to pull it off. But one of the things that I decided to do on my own was to install my shower. I thought, tile work, any idiot can do tile work. <laughs> I say that because my best buddy taught me quite differently. And so I did tile work. Only this idiot didn't know that you're supposed to use concrete backing board behind the tile inside the shower. So I used just green sheetrock board. And um, to my horror, five years later, I began to notice in the ceiling of the basement below the shower, stains, water stains. And you know, you kind of try to ignore it for a while. You just wipe them off and hope they'll go away. But pretty soon, I became sick inside because I knew what was going on. And one day, I went into our shower, took my hammer to my beloved tile work and shattered it and all of my worst uh, imaginations came true. For there, inside that wall, it was rotten. The sheetrock was absolutely mush. The two-by-fours that were new only five years earlier were, were uh, rotting with water. Uh, they were, uh, and we even had an infestation of ants in the corner of the thing. It was a complete mess. The outside paneling was beginning to curl away. We had to tear the whole thing out and rebuild it again. On the surface, my tile job looked beautiful. And inside, it was rotten, rotten, rotten to the core. What is one of the favorite excuses that unbelievers use for not coming to church? I know you've heard it before. Ah, I don't go to church. It's just full of hypocrites. And of course, it's true. Uh, the best way to defang that argument is to say, you're right. It's true. But it is the worst thing that someone can think to say about the church, that we pretend to be one thing, but we are something entirely else on the inside. That's how the movies portray us, especially those of us who are in the clergy. 
Uh, we are, look like we are holy and pious, but really inside we are money-grubbing, manipulative phonies. It is the reason that the media enjoys so much trumpeting the moral failures of prominent uh, clergy persons like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. They just delight in that stuff. Because behind the articles and the interviews, they are saying, we knew it, we knew it, we knew it all along. At poor Sardesian church, they were living on their past glories. Just like the city that they were resided in. Their best was behind them. There was a time when they were real. There was a time when their faith was genuine. There was a time when their church was, was healthy and vital, but those days were behind them. And now they were dead. And I wonder how many American churches would be the recipients of this awful letter today if John were to send it out. I'll be honest with you, John's words to Sardis are perhaps the most troubling of all of the letters in the book of Revelation because I think it hits closest to home for us Presbyterians. As a denomination, we live in Sardis. We are a denomination whose best days are behind it. Our days of effective ministry and mission and clear vision and articulation of that vision as an institution, they are behind us. In fact, I don't even know if it could truthfully be, said, truthfully be said of us that we have a reputation for being alive. I don't know if that's true. Our denominational structures, many of them are, are dead. Our churches, thousands of them, are dead. And our brother and sister Presbyterians, perhaps tens of thousands, are dead, spiritually dead. We are living in our past glories and we are unable to see the terrible condition in which we find ourselves today. And this, the radical surgery that is required for us to be healthy again. Now there are many exceptions, many wonderful exceptions. And I would like to believe that Chapel Hill Church is one of those. But then before we become too cocky, I find myself feeling very nervous. Because it was just when the city of Sardis felt that they were impregnable, that Cyrus attacked and defeated them. And then 300 years later, when the memory of Cyrus is but a dim reflection in their thoughts, again they are attacked and humiliated by the Seleucids. And so the next words leap out at the people who are part of this community, and they ought to leap out at us who feel like we've got it all together. For Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. The, literally the words mean be vigilant, be watchful. He says, don't get caught sleeping on the watch like the watchman did 500 years ago, 700 years ago. He says, don't become lackadaisical. Don't let down your guard. Don't worry about preserving and, and protecting your image. Worry about what is going on inside of you and strengthen what is left there before it dies away too. Ah, so there is hope. We just read that the church is dead. Dead seems dead to us, but there seems to be hope. So what is the spiritual antidote to hypocrisy according to Jesus? How do we overcome it? In a word, I would say humility. Again, that word is not used in the text, but I think it is the word that describes what Jesus is going for. He says, first of all, remember what you received and repent. Remember what you received and repent. There was a time, he says, when your relationship with Jesus was fresh, when your relationship with me was fresh and genuine. Remember that. There was a time when you understood what I had done for you on the cross. Remember that time. There was a time when you felt totally inadequate before God and 
When you experienced the glory of my forgiveness, your lives were changed. Remember that time. There was a time when you repented, when you did a 180 degree turn and, and went the other direction because you realized that the path you were pursuing was death and only I could offer life. So remember that time and repent of the, what you are doing now. Remember when you were soft and gentle and sweet and broken for me. And build up those little pieces that still have life. Blow on those embers of coal. It is only the humble man who can do such a thing. It is only the humble woman who can pray such prayers. Hypocrisy is born of hubris. It is the prideful pretense that we have it all together spiritually. And the truly humble person cannot be a hypocrite because we are so aware of our dependency upon Jesus that we have nothing to fake. There's a paradox in this passage. Even though Jesus pronounces the church dead, there seems to be hope. There is, after all, the living one who's speaking to them. He is the resurrected one. Life after death is his speciality. He is in the business of raising the dead to life. And so Jesus looks into the midst of even this phony, baloney church, and he finds hope. He finds a few of them who still have the embers of life in them. Did you notice how he describes them? Did you notice? In the midst of this city that prides itself on beautiful, colorful, woolen garments, how does Jesus describe those folks who have hung in there? Verse 4, it says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not, what? Soiled their clothes. Do you get it? It's perfect for the context. I think it's great. He's, he knew who he was speaking to, these people who make their living by selling beautiful new woolen goods. And they wouldn't know exactly what Jesus was saying because he says, your, your garments are still clean. They're fresh. They're beautiful. My father-in-law, who owns a dry cleaning plant business in, in Salt Lake City, would appreciate this imagery. But notice what he promises to those who don't fall into the hypocrisy trap. He doesn't promise to them the richly colored garments of Sardis. Jesus promises what? What color? White. Simple white garments. Could it be that once again Jesus is saying to these people who care so much about what they are on the surface, it could it be that once again he is saying, you have got to get this. You have got to understand what I'm saying. It is not what you wear on the outside. It is not the facade that you put up that counts to me. I don't care what fancy clothes you have to wear. I look at the humble hearts within. Those are the ones with whom I walk. Those are the ones with whom I will walk for all of eternity. Jesse, the mouth Ventura. That's turned the wrong way. That was good. Fake me out. <laughs> Jesse Ventura really has managed in his short tenure to uh, step in it, hasn't he? He's done a pretty good job of, of offending just about everyone in America, and he managed to add to that all of the religious persons in this country. When he said recently something along the lines that he doesn't need organized religion because only the weak need religion. Man, did he get a response. So then he held a press conference to try to dig himself out and just threw a few more piles on top of what was already the pile that he was in. I cannot speak for any other religious group that he managed to offend. I can't even speak for the rest of you Christians. But speaking for myself, I would say to Jesse Ventura, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That is exactly why I need Jesus. And that's why I need Jesus, church. Because I am weak. 
And left to my own devices, I will make bad decisions and do bad things. I am not able, in my own strength, to do the thing that I most want to do in my best self, which is to be good enough to get God's attention and to earn His favor. I can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. And only the church of Jesus can help me to do it. That's why I need Him. That's why I need it. And that's why you're right about me, Governor Ventura. It is when we have the humility to admit that what we really are, to admit that we are really needy, it is then that we, have, that we are the most genuine, the most real, the most honest and honorable before the Lord and before the world that looks on. I don't want Chapel Hill Church to be another Sardis. For we are a church with a reputation, aren't we? The community speaks well of us. We have a, a great reputation, I believe. A reputation for being alive. A reputation for being vital. A reputation for being innovative. And man, I don't want to be blindsided by an enemy as we are enjoying our reputation. I don't want to be sailing along comfortable with the, the facade that we place before the community while all the while we are growing deader and deader inside. It seems to me that we are precisely the kind of church that needs to listen to these words because we don't think they apply to us. Because we look at our parking lot and we see scads of cars and hundreds of people here on any given day. Because we look at our calendar and see scores of activities. Because we do have a reputation for being alive. We must be vigilant. We must be watchful. We must be doubly cautious to make sure that that we present ourselves to be on the outside what we are in fact through and through and through. You know where that begins, don't you? I'm actually wrong. I was going to say it begins, it begins here, to be honest. It begins with leaders that seek to be the same behind the closed door as they are in front. But I was going to say a church that repudiates hypocrisy must begin with people who would repudiate Hypocrisy. It must begin with members who would repudiate hypocrisy. One by one by one. You and you and you and you and you. And every other person, if I had time to point at you. This is where a church that repudiates hypocrisy begins. It begins by us saying, no more games, no more show, no more religious pretensions. I'm not going to present myself as one thing on Sunday morning and then go on being the same ruthless cutthroat the rest of the week that I've always been. By God's grace, I'm going to bring all of my life into the purifying light of God's love and in humility, I will surrender all that I am to Jesus Christ that I might be the same in the dark that I am in the light. Most of you already know about my three-year-old Cooper's beloved friend, Bear Bear. I spent a good deal of one vacation tearing apart a Safeway store where Cooper lost Bear Bear because he was inconsolable and we were not going to have any sleep until I found that bear. Believe it or not, my little Cooper is going to be four years old on Christmas Day. And he has many other good friends, among them Hopper. <laughs> I told you about Hopper recently. But when push comes to shove, there's no friend like Bear Bear. The other day we were sitting there and Cooper was holding Bear Bear on the couch, sucking his thumb. 
getting sleepy enough to be hauled off to bed. And Cindy looked over and she said, Oh, Cooper, Bear Bear is dirty. He's just dirty. We have got to wash him. Without a pause, he pulled his thumb out of his mouth and said, He's not dirty. He's perfect. (laughs) Popped his thumb back in and held Bear Bear even closer to himself. As if to say, Just try and wash this bear. (laughs) If we're willing to pull down the facade and throw away the masks that we like to wear, the religious masks, if we are willing to set aside our hypocrisy and, and admit that, in fact, we really are pretty dirty and we need cleaning up and only Jesus can do it, it is then that we are surprised to hear the voice of Jesus saying, Ah, you're not so dirty. You're perfect. And he pulls us closer to himself. Wouldn't it be great if it could be said of the believers here at Chapel Hill that we are genuine? That what you see from us on a Monday or a Tuesday is the same thing you see on a Sunday morning. Wouldn't it be great if we were devoted to tearing down religious pretense? Wouldn't it be great if this would be the place where we welcome sinners because we too are sinners and we are happy for company of like folks? And that together in humility we are ready to present ourselves before the only one who has it in him to take our dirty rags and exchange them for pure white garments. Let us be that kind of a church. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, You know us better than we know ourselves. And even if there is pretension between us, there's no pretense with you. So we offer ourselves up to you, O God. And we pray that those things which we pretend would be removed. And they would be replaced with genuineness, with integrity, with honesty and truthfulness. And that soon the real us would begin to look like that which we pretended to be. Because we have had the humility to lay ourselves before you and ask for you to clean us up. Thank you, O God, for what you are doing in our midst. Thank you for that money that you are going to receive now from us, an expression of our devotion to you. Would you purify it, too? For we know that it can be filthy, but we also know that you can use it for great, glorious, and pure things. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please let us stand and sing together our doxology. Mm-hmm.